read this report from Release International. More than 40 Christians were killed by militant Fulani herdsmen in raids at a cluster of villages in Nigeria. That was earlier this month. And it goes on. Most disturbing also is the fact that the identity of the perpetrators is known to security agencies, and yet nothing has been done to end this carnage. And I thought to myself, what can I possibly say to you, God, whenever I consider such evil that's been done against your children? An hour later, I opened my Bible to this psalm, and this is a good psalm to turn to. It's a good psalm to pray to God when you too have agonizing questions. You can see that David feels isolated from Yahweh as he pens this lament. He feels that God is hiding himself in times of trouble. But isn't God the one who doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted? Last week's Psalm 9 verse 12. Which is it, David? Didn't we just hear you declaring in Psalm 9 verse 9 last Sunday that God is a stronghold in times of trouble for the oppressed? Yes and yes. Isn't this typical of our human experience? Our faith ebbs and flows. Our suffering decreases and then intensifies. Sometimes we feel the close hand of God and hardly feel the hands of the wicked against us. Other times we feel surrounded by our enemies and distant from our divine deliverer. One minute you were lying on the sofa thinking of nothing. And the next moment, your life seems flipped upside down. But I think one reason why the Psalms are a, are a favorite for many Christians is because we relate to them so easily. The honesty of the Psalmist is refreshing. They don't hide anything of human weakness. If Psalms 9 and 10 were originally one, as Richard suggested, and many scholars agree, then perhaps the opening verse of today's psalm is really Psalm 9 verse 1, where David is able to recount God's past deliverance and his ongoing rule as king of kings. Maybe sometime it would be helpful to read these psalms even in reverse order, because that way you will see that we can have faith in future deliverance, a future deliverance that we haven't seen play out in full, but we do have a certain hope in that because we know that Christ has already achieved it in securing our salvation. Scripture from start to finish promises that God will be glorified among the nations, Psalm 10 verse 16, and he receives glory in salvation through the judgment of the wicked. There isn't a psalm that has a more, a more frequent description of human defenselessness, human weakness, so many terms close together than this one. And that tells us that all of us require the protection of a benevolent and all-powerful God who is king over us. And so I think this psalm has something to say to every single one of us. We do read in it a lengthy description of the wicked. David reveals the very thoughts of the godless their contempt for God's law and for their fellow humans. And then we, call, we come to a call, and it's a bold call for God to act. And then finally, we can observe this 
resolute faith that David has in the Lord of justice. And that in spite of the the present prosperity of the ungodly. So for my outline this morning, we have one long sentence broken up into three points. Each of the, the clauses in the sentence relate to each other. And so firstly, we'll see that when the schemer pursues the lowly, the supplicant pleads with the Lord and the Savior protects the lowly. But I want to begin with this first point. When the schemer pursues the lowly, and we see that from verse 1 all the way through verse 11. And we begin with this worried man's question. Where is God when I hurt? How many times have you asked that question? Probably subconsciously asking that question. And in the final five Psalms of our little series, you may begin to wonder, where is the the God of Psalm 1? The Lord who knows the way of the righteous, but promises the way of the wicked will perish. This may be the place of inner wrestling that David finds himself in. He's agonizing over this apparently flipped upside down justice in his world, and he cries out to God. But this isn't the complaining of the people of Israel in the wilderness, asking God for better bread. This is an honest expression of lament over a circumstance which a God-fearing man knows is upside down. Sometimes when we suffer persecution, despite being faithful to God, and then we look around us and we see ungodly people prospering, of course we may feel like asking God to show himself, to intervene. But David doesn't simply complain at God, he's complaining to God and he's detailing the injustices carefully. But then he will plead with the Lord and he leaves his heart open before God. He trusts in his faithful king. And prayer should be needs expressed in detail to God. And that's why I think whenever we read this psalm as a whole, we we don't come to the end of it thinking David was wrong to ask that question at the start. But look at what he does then. From verses 2 to 11, he details the wicked man's character. And there are two sections with five verses each. And the gall and the viciousness of this wicked person seems to grow exponentially in the second section. His arrogant boasts turn to violent, scheming speech and even violent, murderous action. I want you to notice how each despicable detail of the wicked is matched in each section. And I know it's a little bit irregular, but I've put a a table up for us just to observe that the actions or the words of the first section are matched and even worsened in the second. So you see in verse 2 that the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And then in verses 8 and 9, they're sitting in ambush in a hiding place. He murders the innocent. Start of verse 3 talks about the boasts of the desire of their soul. Verse 6, that boast is now, I shall not be moved. So the wicked now think they're invincible. Again, in verse 3, there's these curses of God. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. So you get the idea as you look through the passage. This is getting worse and worse. And I think that the effect of such a lengthy complaint is to let us feel the full weight of David's sorrow and his righteous indignation 
at the enemies of God who he sees triumphing over the weak and helpless. From the outset, David wants the wicked to be caught in the very schemes that they devise. And we love watching whenever a, a, a villain ironically falls into their own trap. This was the high point of any Tom and Jerry episode. Tom sets a mouse trap to catch Jerry, only to trip and fall into it himself. And in verse 2, that request is linked to what follows with this word for. Notice it in verse 3. David wants the wicked to be caught in their trap. Why? For or because they're arrogantly boasting of themselves. They're proudly denying God's existence and they're claiming God will never call us to account. You'll see that in your footnote. But to take these words from the page and add a little bit more color in our minds, I want you to consider another cartoon, or rather poem. I don't know if you ever read Dr. Seuss, but Dr. Seuss has a character called Yertle the Turtle. And he was the epitome of a proud king who exploited the poor for his own advancement. He had lots of turtles in his kingdom stacked on top of each other until he could get to the top and see higher and further than anyone else. And he was boasting of his great kingdom, but he always needed to go a little bit higher. And every time he went higher, the turtles complained that their backs were sore. And this is what he said. You hush up your mouth, howled the mighty King Yertle. You've no right to talk to the world's highest turtle. I rule from the clouds, over land, over sea. There's nothing, no nothing, that's higher than me. But while he was shouting, he saw with surprise that the moon of the evening was starting to rise up over his head in the darkening skies. What's that? snorted Yertle. Say, what is that thing that dares to be higher than Yertle the king? I shall not allow it. I'll go higher still. I'll build my throne higher. I can and I will. I'll call some more turtles. I'll stack them to heaven. I need about 5,607. And by the end of that poem, you've guessed it, they all come tumbling down, and King Yertle is left king of nothing but the mud that he sinks into. It's a humorously graphic illustration of our Hebrew poet's prayer in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. As ever, pride comes before the fall. Literally a fall in King Yertle's case. But always there will be a fall for the proud, whether that comes in this life or in the final judgment. I want you to notice that the wicked, this nameless wicked person, speaks three times in the psalm. Firstly, they say there is no God. Secondly, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And thirdly, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face he will never see it. The first speech depicts full-blown atheism. The second depicts self-determinism, that I am a rock, I am an island kind of mentality. And the third is deism, the idea that God exists, he may even have created us, but he's not powerful enough or he doesn't care enough to intervene in our lives. And all three of the positions presented are rampant in our society, and at different times, they overtake each other for prominence. But even within the heart of the believer, 
there can be a tendency to forget how completely dependent we are on God. We may not say that first speech, there is no God, or that he's forgotten us, but we do forget him. And Stephen Charnock said, a God forgotten is as good as no God to us. And so if you're reading this psalm and you're a God-fearing believer, you might be tempted to excuse the application of this psalm to yourself. This is a psalm that deals with the wicked who reject God entirely. But pride is present, even subtly so, in all of our hearts. Sometimes it's called functional atheism. And that can be alive and well in the church. It can be seen whenever we tell people that we have it all together when we don't. We're okay when we're not. We can get by on our own when we can't. When we don't need a prayer meeting or we don't need to meet regularly to worship together in the family of God when we do. And all of these things can creep into our lives and we become, we think, less dependent on God. But I also want you to consider down at verse 7. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3 and there he's demonstrating the wickedness that so often asserts itself through the tongue. And C.S. Lewis read the Psalms and he was quite surprised, he said, that in a simple and more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick and the firebrand, less would be done by talk, or so he thought. But he goes on, in reality, the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more often than this one. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. No historical readjustments are required where in the world we know. And I think he's right. These things continue to go on today. The root of every sinful thought deed or word is pride. This oppressor that David speaks of is described as arrogant, boastful, greedy, puffed up, deceitful, mischievous, and even murderous. But all of those sinful behaviors stem from pride, from an over excessive estimation of yourself. When you begin to act as though you think you're God, but it's no accident that from Psalm 8, 9, and 10, David selects a word for man that most emphasizes human frailty. There are a few words for man that he could have selected in his language, but he wants to disavow prideful man of his arrogance. In Psalm 8, frail man is in all of God's grace. He says, what is man that you're mindful of me? The son of man that you care for him. But then we come to Psalms 9 and 10. You remember that David closes Psalm 9 asking God to remind the wicked that they are but weak men. And he closes Psalm 10 similarly. He wants to highlight that we're all from the earth and that we return to it where we can strike terror no more. The point is this. We are powerless without God. Weak man recognized that in Psalm 8. He wondered that God would so dignify humans by giving us a place as rulers over earth and the animal kingdom, etc. 
But in Psalm 9 and 10, the same humans, the same frail mankind have perverted their role. They're not so much caring for creation and others created in the image of God. They're dominating fellow divine image bearers. There can be no place for this in the church. We need to remind ourselves, if if we have a tendency to belittle others and promote ourselves, we need to remind ourselves of our status before the Lord. Mere humans are dust. We have no right to boast over one another. But since the schemer is pursuing the lowly, secondly, the supplicant pleads with the Lord. You see that in verses 12 to 15. The Christian church through the centuries has done much to provide and promote orphan care. Consider how radical this was in the church as it was growing in the fourth century. It was in a a pagan, hostile territory. And yet in the fourth century, there were poor houses. And they were built by a Turkish Christian bishop called Basil. And he wanted to care for lepers. He wanted to care for slaves. But they were not the most helpless groups in the Roman Empire. Orphans were. Babies would be abandoned in rubbish dumps, dropped down drains. And those who reached adolescence usually ended up in brothels. And most people took this inhumane treatment as commonplace, but not the church. You see, Bishop Basil's sister, Macrina, she would tour these refuse dumps. She would pick up those babies and those children, and she took them home to raise as her own. Because she was convinced that even in the most helpless child, a glimpse or an imprint of the divine existed. But why has there been such a radical concern for the helpless throughout the church? Because both Old and New Testaments uphold God's strong command to protect the weak. That's why the psalmist calls God the helper of the fatherless. That's why Jesus' half-brother James said that religion God the Father accepts is caring for orphans or widows who need help and keeping yourself free from the world's evil influence. David knows that the wicked's blasphemous lies about God not caring, not seeing, not remembering the plight of the poor, he knows all those things are wrong. So he pleads with his loving Lord in this prayer of supplication. And as he prays this prayer, he is reminding himself and those who hear as this would have been sung, that God does care, that he does remember his children's suffering. If you look at verse 12, you'll see a trio of commands that David makes to God. Arise, lift up your hands, do not forget. They're all imperatives, they're all commands. And it's right to call God to defend the oppressed. Because as he does that, he is defending his own honor. And as he does that, he's glorifying his name in all the earth. There is no doubt that God really does hate these, these evil character traits that are described. We know that because in Proverbs, we have them listed. It's stated explicitly in Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. I'll give you five of them. You'll see them all in Psalm 10. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. So there's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that God will arise, that God will lift up his hand, because he is our just judge, and he is our righteous king. David's just written in verse 12 of last week's psalm, Psalm 9, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That word avenge is used in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 five or six times. Sometimes it's translated to seek out or call to account in English. And so we lose the wordplay that David used. But this is a summary of his point. God seeks out acts of evil perpetrated on those who seek him by those who refuse to seek him and who think God will not seek out their wickedness. But God has not forgotten. Often, whenever God is called to remember in scripture or when he says, I do remember my people, it's the idea of compassionate awareness of their plight coupled with decisive action to intervene for their rescue. Let me repeat that. When God's called to remember, that word remembering is the idea of compassionate awareness of your plight coupled with decisive action to intervene for your rescue. While the wicked in verse 13 renounce God, the psalmist calls on God to act in accordance with his character. It's not a vindictive call for revenge made from unholy hatred. This is David calling on God to defend his name, his reputation, from those who seek to dishonor it. Because verse 14 affirms, God does see. Verse 14, you note mischief and vexation. The ESV, that word note, is a little bit weak. Better the older translations in this case, which have behold or God observes. God carefully considers the plight of his people. Your suffering, whatever it may be, is not overlooked. It is not missed by God's all-watchful eye. You can take comfort in that. But do you ever assume that God is not fully aware, that he's not intimately concerned about us? Then remind yourselves how many evidences of his love are piled up for us in Scripture. Consider how Jesus comforted his own disciples on the night that he was betrayed and how he promised his Holy Spirit to be comforter, teacher, advocate, defender. We, as the church, have that promise as a fully realized gift to us if we're God's children. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do what we see the helpless do in verse 14. To you, the helpless commits himself. Interestingly, that word commit is most often used in scripture to speak of forsaking or leaving how come. Because here the helpless is humble enough to abandon themselves to God, not entrusting themselves to their own help. No, they forsake any self-imagined help that they can give themselves to fully give themselves over to God. And so must we. We need to stop depending on our own strength or we will soon find that we never have enough for each day. 
our strength is in the Lord. And then in verse 15, we have a fourth command. And with this fourth command, I think we're encouraged to get rid of a a sanitized view of God. Because for God to break the arm of the wicked is to break their power completely. We mustn't think of God as passive. We mustn't emphasize his patience whilst forgetting his demand for justice. God does bring violence against the wicked now and certainly later. God is king and he has installed his son Jesus Christ as the king of kings and also the commander of his armies. When he returns, this prayer of David will be answered in a comprehensive way. We see that all over the prophets. Whenever Isaiah ends his prophecy, he includes the Lord's promise to come in fire to judge the wicked completely. Zechariah records the Lord's promise to protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord who will do this is the Christ, the one who will go before his people in future judgment and promises to strengthen the very feeblest amongst us. We know that the one who will answer David's prayer is Jesus because Revelation 19 vividly portrays the rider on the white horse, the one called faithful and true, the word of God who will lead the armies of heaven to execute God's justice against evil. And then David's prayer will not need to be prayed ever again, for Christ will call all wickedness to account until he finds no more. And then we shall reign with him in righteousness, in truth, with justice and harmony. That is to be a comfort to David, that is to be a comfort to the suffering believer today. But the greatest comfort comes in the climax of David's lament and this completion of our sentence. When the schemer pursues the lowly and the supplicant pleads with the Lord, the Savior protects the lowly. You want people to know the inner turmoil that you feel without having to explain it to them. You want to know how much longer before you will have some kind of healthy sleep pattern with your newborn. You want to know what the first thing you should say to your spouse should be in the morning. They've been suffering from some debilitating illness. You want to be vindicated from unfair treatment from your boss. You want to know where your next mortgage payment will come from if the interest rate rises one more time. Maybe these represent a few questions on the hearts of some here this morning. Why mention them? Because we need to take confidence from this inspired psalm of lament and especially from verses 16 to 18 where we are taught with absolute certainty that the Lord hears the cries of your heart. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, suffering is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. In verse 16, there's two lines of poetry, but they have a stark contrast because whilst Yahweh is king forever and ever, the enemy nations will perish from the land. And so at this point, David's spirit is emboldened. 
his faith is bolstered as he reminds himself and us of who his king is. And when you're amidst great trouble, when you're oppressed by others, you're made to feel weak and helpless, maybe you feel some particular attack from the evil one, you have a persistent illness or any life trial, remind yourself who your king is and what he is like. And so briefly in closing, here are five C's to remember about your king. Verse 17 at the start. King, your king is concerned. So he hears your heart's cry when you're afflicted. He's comforting. He will strengthen your weary heart because he is also close to the afflicted. And that word in verse 17, incline, it has the idea of God attending to your needs. So he hears your heart's cry and he acts to help you because he cares for the weak, verse 18, and because he's in control, he will put a complete full stop to the reign of terror, whatever that may be. When the Lord acts to rescue his people from their wicked oppressors, no longer will they have cause for fear and dread. And if that seems like a foreign idea to us, just remember how much comfort this must bring the persecuted church. Those the enemies of God afflict are children of the almighty ruler of heaven and earth, and he is on the side of the poor. Last Sunday, we looked at biblical justice, and we saw that Proverbs 28 verse 5 was as true now as it was when Solomon wrote it. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Part of our understanding of God's justice includes learning to be patient as we wait for its full expression. So is God too slow? No, his timing is perfect. We set our clocks, and I'm conscious that I've gone over 12, we set our time by coordinated universal time. And that's kept by using highly precise atomic clocks combined with the earth's rotation. It's very precise. But God's timing is more reliable than even that. In fact, one of the last things that the apostle Peter wrote was that God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Rather, he is patient because he does not wish any should perish. At the same time, Peter says, the, the day of the Lord's wrath will come like a thief and the works done on earth will be exposed. In light of that, Peter says we're to be living holy, godly lives, diligently working, seeking peace, not being impatient or angry at how the unrighteous prosper. So this morning, I want to encourage you and exhort you, whatever you're going through, continue to call out to God when you're in need. Be comforted that he has not forgotten you nor has he forgotten his promises. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on Christ's account, he is speaking. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So we go on rejoicing, come what may in this life. We trust that our savior will hear us when we call to him. And we trust that he will come back and he will take us to our eternal rewards, eternal life 
eternal peace with God. Amen.